everyone. Before we get into this episode, I want to make a very quick announcement about a great upcoming online event called the Festival of Genomics that I think a lot of you will be interested in. As you know, we don't have any ads on the podcast, and I'm not getting paid to say this. I'm just a really big fan of this event for a couple reasons. First, they bring a really incredible set of speakers. This year, it's online. It's over four days, and they have more than 100 great speakers all focused around different topics in genomics. Second part is it's pitched at a level that's accessible to almost anyone. So if I don't know anything about cancer genomics or epigenomics, I can go in and, and still learn something. The third part is it's free for almost everyone. So it's I think it's free for everyone except for um, businesses that are, are vendors and services to the pharma and life sciences industry. So that if that's you, you can go check it out. And it doesn't cost much anyways, but for everyone else, patients, patient advocates, scientists, um, it's free and, and you can pop in and pop out. So it's online over four days from January 26th to the 29th. As I said before, there's over 100 speakers, quite a few previous guests from the podcast, actually, like Jeff Barrett talking about COVID-19 surveillance, Eric Topol, Mavis Machirori, who hasn't actually been on the podcast, but she did take part in one of our webinars on how to improve representativeness in genomics research. Richard Scott from Genomics England talking about their large-scale sequencing program. Um, I'll be giving a presentation on Wednesday, the 27th at 2.30 p.m. UK time, which is 9.30 a.m. on the East Coast and 6.30 a.m. on the West Coast if you're in the U.S. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that. If you're interested in signing up, you can visit their website. It's festivalofgenomics.com and you can see all the information there. Thanks for listening and now on to the regularly scheduled episode. Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here with Daniel Barvin. Daniel came out with a remarkable personal story recently about his experience with familial ALS. ALS is also known as motor neuron disease. And if you're not familiar with, with it, it affects hundreds of thousands of people worldwide and is a neurodegenerative disorder. If you have heard of it before, it may have been due to something like the Ice Bucket Challenge or because of Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist who lived to age 76 with ALS and was, of course, an inspiration to many for, for the way he took whatever his doctors told him when he was first diagnosed and, and uh, knocked it out of the ballpark. Um, so ALS can be sporadic, which means the cause of the disease is unknown, but it can also be familial where there are one or more genetic variants involved. So Daniel, uh, who I'm with here today, is part of a family that's affected by familial ALS, and he's received genetic testing himself for one of the known genetic risk factors after realizing that his father carried the gene. So the gene's called C9 or 72, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later in what's known about it. Um, and then since then, Daniel's been on a mission to change the conversation around genetic testing in ALS, familial ALS, and to, I think, hopefully end ALS for future generations. So Daniel, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share your story. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure. And I'm so happy that we can work together to spread awareness about this cause and everything that you're doing. Excellent. And and I spoke a little bit about your story, but I'm not going to come anywhere near to giving it justice. So I wonder if you could just take us back to the beginning when you, maybe when you first heard about ALS, how old were you? What was it like? And, and how did the story unfold from there? Sure, sure. So, you know, unfortunately, ALS has been a constant companion in my life. Starting when I was only 10 years old, um, my grandfather was undergoing dementia at the time. And at the time, we didn't know that it was frontal temporal dementia, um, a causative factor for, of C9, the gene mutation my family carries. And his oldest son was fighting ALS. So it was a very tumultuous time for our family. And being so young, I, I don't remember exact 
pinpoint memories of the experience. However, uh, I do remember my family struggling to find resources, trying to get people involved in clinical trials. And this was back in um, 1999. So there wasn't much going on in, in the field of research for ALS. Um, unfortunately, in the next two years, both my grandfather and uncle would pass away from their diseases. Uh, and that really started our journey. At that time, we didn't realize that, uh, that ALS could be familial. So we moved on uh, and didn't revisit our family until about 10 or 12 years later when my aunt Paula was diagnosed with lower limb onset ALS. This was about 2010, um, two years before C9 or 72 mutation was actually discovered. So no doctors recommended genetic testing. They had an inclination that there might be a genetic link between her ALS and her brother's. Um, however, that wasn't fully understood and was not pursued. Uh, so we thought we were a sporadic family still. We all came together to support her through her journey. Um, this time, it took so much in terms of financial support, uh, emotional support for her young son who had to live through her disease. Um, and, and I just remember this very vividly, uh, her, her battle. Uh, sadly, again, in two years, she also lost that battle with ALS, and we were back to living our lives. Um, sad, again, but having no notion that this would affect us um, further. And, and throughout this time, my father had been experiencing signs of early-onset dementia. And again, we didn't realize this re was related and also didn't have any clue as to what was causing it. Um, after various um, trips to neurologists, there still was no insight as the field of FTD research was very young at the time, um, but we just pushed through. Um, but I do think that my father's dementia had a large impact on who I was as a child having to deal with that situation in our family structure. Uh, and I try to look back now on the experience I had with my father and, and know that this disease was what caused his illness and it was not his true intention um, or uh, reason. It was not his, did not cause his um, dementia. So uh, anyways, after my father's dementia worsened around 2014, 2015, um, we all came together to, to search for the cause uh, and what was happening. And um, it was only after he passed away from this disease at his autopsy that we found out that he carried the C9 ORP72 gene mutation. Um, as I believe the researchers who were doing that work uh, were intrigued in finding out more, and they then presented us this information. So that was the biggest shock for my brothers and I. Um, the fact that this could be passed down to our generation after having seen so much trauma um, in my father's generation. And I, I think that maybe the experience of living through the trauma of my family had maybe given us more ability to see the, the longer term picture and say, look, I think we can deal with this information because we had just seen so many family members be blindsided by this disease. So we knew knowledge is power. 
Um, so at that point, we decided to get tested. And as we know now, we found out that, that I am a carrier for the C9 ORF72 gene mutation. And that really has changed how I've moved forward with my life and, and tried to take action. So how old were you when you found out about your father's diagnosis and, and the C9 ORF72 uh, mutation. What was the time frame? How long did it take you to, you know, you personally or as a family to come to the decision to to pursue genetic testing? And it would be, I think it's useful maybe to talk about the some of the fears or uncertainty and backdrop in in the U.S., especially with insurance discrimination. There, you know, it's it's not even as straightforward as do I want this testing for personal or medical reasons. There's there's many other things to consider when making that decision, right? That's, that's very true. Um, so I was 26 years old when I found out that my father had carried the gene mutation that now me and my siblings were at risk. And really, the thought process was I had just gotten married and my wife and I were looking to have looking forward to having children. And we knew that this gene mutation could be passed down um, and our offspring would have a 50 percent chance of carrying the same gene mutation. So for us, that was the imperative to find out. However, um, after talking to a genetic counselor, we understood the need and importance of first taking care of all of the insurance um, needs one might have if they were to find out they were positive for this uh, genetic mutation. So things like um, life insurance, long-term care insurance, and disability insurance are things that in the U.S., uh, you can still have genetic discrimination about. Um, so at 26, we found out we were at risk. And then I found out that I carried the gene when I was 30 years old. Um, and I, and I, I, I will tell you how I did that. So luckily, my uh, aunt was in conversation with uh, the wife of my uncle who passed away from ALS at the very beginning, uh, was in contact with us as we found out that this was a familial form of ALS. And she connected us with uh, Dr. Merit Sukovich, one of the leading researchers in ALS, whom had helped my uncle during his battle with ALS. Uh, and Dr. Sukovich connected us to the DIALS research study uh, at MGH, that stands for Dominant Inherited ALS uh, Research Study. And that's, that's really been the vehicle for how we all receive this information of our genetic status. And I think that's the best way for other people to do so if they can, because they de-identify your um, genetic results and everything they do inside of that study. So it's not put on your medical record. And this only can come up if you uh, pursue personal um, health insurance. However, there are ways to get um, in the U.S. the Affordable Care Act insurance, which does not disqualify pre-existing conditions. Um, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem anyways. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd love to hear more about the the decision around having your first child. And and I, I think you went through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I, I'd love to hear more about that. This is one of the enormously remarkable things that has changed in the last 10, 20 years, because the, there's a there are many arguments for and against whether you should receive this kind of testing, one of the reasons people often choose not to is that they feel there's nothing they can do with that information. Um, but clearly, in your case, there's there's something really tangible and profound that you could do with that information. So I'd love to hear more about how that experience was. 
That's so true, Patrick. Um, so for us, we, we saw the devastation this gene mutation had caused my father's generation. We understood the impact it may have on my generation, but the fact that we could do pre-implantation genetic diagnostics to ensure the safety and security of the next generation was the rallying cry that pushed us through what, what understandably is a difficult decision to find out our genetic status. Um, so at the initial conversation with a genetic counselor, as we brought up the fact that my father had the gene mutation, uh, the genetic counselor informed us that there were options such as PGD, uh, IVF and PGD, where we could save the next generation. And, and to me, that truly is a cure we already have. Um, and and, and I, I can say fully that having the knowledge that I've saved my son from what might have been a an ALS diagnosis in 50 or 60 years it will keep me empowered through every obstacle I face throughout this entire journey. Now, I, I do I do know that IVF and PGD is not an easy journey to go through for the the, the woman in the family, but I think together as a couple, uh, my wife and I got through it, um, supporting each other, and I think connecting on a deeper level, knowing that we were striving for something so great. Um, and so uh, even though it was difficult, I think coming out now, having my son who's seven months old, um, it was entirely worth it. Amazing. That's uh, that's just so exciting. What barriers do you see to this being adopted more widely? And and I'd love to talk a little bit more about your advocacy work as well, because you, you, you've you had to cross a number of hurdles along the way, finding your way into a research study so you could avoid some of the insurance concerns um, you know, th- these things are also expensive to do in, in some cases, and they're often not covered by insurance. Sometimes they are. I wonder if you, and I'm sure you have people since you've been really public about your story, and, and there are relatively few others like you out there that have been public like this. You probably get people that come to you and, and ask for advice, and, and every every case is different. But what are some of the patterns that you see that, that the, the system could change to to make this a little bit easier for the next um, the next group of people. Sure, uh, you know I, I I do think that this is something that if you look at the economics of generational economics of what kind of cost are we avoiding if we do things like IVF and PGD, it does make sense that we can decrease the number of future ALS patients. And it seems reasonable that either the U.S. government, and I know this is covered by other governments and other European countries mainly, um, but I would like to see some sort of payment structure so that there's a more equitable landscape for IVF and PGD. Um, I will say and point out that some insurance companies do cover IVF and PGD for um, their patients. Uh, so it's always vital to check with your insurance company to understand whether or not IVF and PGD is covered because it could cost much less than you think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is there's not currently an approved therapy for, for ALS. Um, for, for people who maybe are, have already had kids or are, or are you know, not planning to how do you talk through this this um, question of if there's nothing I can do about it, do I want to know? I mean, I, I obviously personally have my own thoughts because research is a is a important thing that you can power. But I'm 
I'm interested in in how you go through those conversations and and also from for you personally whether that weighed on on you whether the the burden of knowing was was something you you considered or whether it was um you know wh- whether it was outweighed by all of the other important points. I try to show people that finding out their genetic status can be completely empowering not only for the fact that there may be therapeutics in the pipeline that may prevent ALS from ever occurring but solely because of the fact that it's all about how you face a challenge is exactly how you will react to that challenge. By finding out, I've been able to be connected to community. I've been able to be connected to some of the leading researchers in this um, field to better understand the disease, uh, its propensity for me to possibly have it, and what I can do to potentially uh, delay that onset. And so I, I truly think that I encourage people, and this is obviously their decision, But there is so much power in finding out and taking action and pretty emphatic that in most cases, um, I recommend people finding out their gene status. You did mention um, people who've already had children and are then finding out their gene status. And usually that's how this occurs, because as the gene was only discovered in 2012, um, most people are developing symptoms prior to understanding their descendants uh, correlation to this disease. So uh, that is a subject we are currently trying to find more research on. Um, but how to, how do we have these conversations with young children? When's the right time? Uh, that is a very heavy question um, because you don't want to, the last thing you want to do as a parent is burden your child with this knowledge and then change the course of their life we all want our children to be as carefree as possible. So I do think that there is a certain age or, or period of life where it's best to receive this news. For me personally, I was 26 or 28 years old. I had been married. My wife and I had spent many years together. So I truly had a companion to go through this with. And I, I've seen some people who um, have found out their status and then grapple with how to tell potential uh, partners that they may eventually have to live with this. And so I, I think that giving the, the couple or, or that person the ability to be themselves and show someone why they should care for them and build a relationship. And then when they face this dire challenge, they'll say, it's so worth it because I love you. And, and you can go through that together. So part, part of me says, Wait till you're in a committed relationship. Um, but then before you have children, it's it's your duty to find out, to take action for the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. I had I had really hadn't thought about that angle. If you if you had known at age eighteen, for example, rather than, than twenty-six, how how would things be different? It's impossible to answer, but it you know, you're very you're at a very different um stage in your you know in your development then. Um and I I think there will be this period of time because the technology is changing so quickly where we'll have to confront those questions, but it may be that in, in 50 years, it's, um, you know, that's no longer an issue because it's, it, it potentially could be screened out of the population. Is that what you see as, as one of the ultimate end goals of this? 
So I, I have seen a very interesting TED talk about a woman who is only the third generation of a gene mutation, a fatal gene mutation. Right. And her and her sister have chosen to not have children to end that gene mutation. Now, let's say that they did not have an awareness. Um, this occurred a few hundred years ago. There was no scientific research to inform them of this potential um, passing on of this gene. That could have become the next cystic fibrosis. That could have become the next ALS. And so I do see immense power in being able to have the knowledge and stop this disease for the next generation. Although I don't know if that will be the way we eradicate this disease entirely. IVF and PGD is cost prohibitive, cost prohibitive and not everyone's morals or ethics or religious beliefs allow them to do it. So I think there's still, uh, we have so much faith in the research community to also find therapeutics, potential gene therapies that will hopefully prevent the onset of these symptoms despite a genetic mutation being carried. And even if PGD could work in theory, we, we don't want to wait 20, 30, 40 years, whatever the generation time it takes, and it would probably take multiple. I'd, I'd love to hear more about the precision therapies that are being developed. I, I know a little bit. So Biogen, for example, is working in another inherited uh, genetic variant associated with um, ALS called SOD1. I think they they probably are also looking at, at others like C9 or 72. I wonder if you could, to you know, to the extent that you know, give a, a little bit of an overview of what is the degree to which research and development is is being you know targeted at this problem and and what you think the prospects are. Sure, you know, I will say I'm not an expert in the latest developments, but I'll do the best I can. What it seems is that biopharma companies are looking to develop therapies for symptomatic versions of genetic mutations for ALS. Biogen is one of the first to have promising results um, for their SOD1 variant in the symptomatic individuals. And that has now led them to put out a clinical trial for the pre-symptomatic community. And so I think that that same chronological order will happen for other pharmaceutical companies. Um, first, understanding the efficacy in symptomatic individuals. And this is because there is a different risk-reward equation for those who are symptomatic versus those who are pre-symptomatic. And so for this pre-symptomatic community, it's a much larger decision of whether or not I want to take a unverified drug, you know, at a phase one clinical trial. That's a big decision to weigh on someone who's otherwise healthy. But I, I have seen, and I'm not going to name companies um, now, but there are multiple companies who are coming out with both SOD1 and C9 therapies in the future for both the pre-symptomatic and symptomatic community. What, what I think this has done, uh, and this is very exciting, is change the, the view of the entire ALS community as researchers in biopharma are discovering new insights into the genetic causes of all of ALS. You see a change in the perception of the ALS community. More and more people will have the understanding that I now have that ALS is in their future. And so part of what we're doing is creating the groundwork with my advocacy efforts that will one day be applicable to a much larger population. 
So it's it's very exciting. Absolutely, and and the number I've often heard is is as of today, about ninety percent of cases are thought to be sporadic and ten percent familial. But ten years ago, or maybe twenty years ago, certainly would have said a hundred percent sporadic and and zero percent um, familial. Do you, do you have any um, any idea where where you think this ratio will ultimately level out? Is there still a lot of work to be done to to find more familial genetic variants, or or do you think there's a is there are they ultimately two different diseases really that manifest the same way? I'm I'm really interested in where the state of the science is there now to the extent that I know neither you or I are specialists in this area in terms of the science. My base understanding is we are currently trying to understand the population size for those at risk of a familial gene variant. I also believe that there is a distinct difference between the genetic causes of sporadic ALS and familial genetic variants that pass down hereditarily through generations. So I believe that there will be a division between the two that will remain. And the insight gained into sporadic ALS will give new pathways for therapeutics to be discovered, which will lead from understanding the genetic causes. And there are currently, I think, five familial ALS genetic mutations, C9, SOD1, and a few others. But there are also many families who have a clear indication of a family history of ALS or FTD, but yet have an undiscovered genetic mutation. So there is much research to be done in both areas. Right. And I guess that's the, the research program dials that you mentioned earlier is, is probably one of, the, one of the biggest research programs, I'd imagine, because the MGH and the Broad Institute tend to be ahead of the curve in, in these sorts of things. So they're probably sequencing thousands of families at, at this point, right, to, to try to uncover these new gene variants. Dials is one of the leading research studies, uh, but there are about seven or eight that are currently enrolling right now. Actually, my organization, We Are Familial ALS, is going to be putting out a research dashboard in hopefully the coming weeks or months uh, that will be an easier way for pre-symptomatic individuals to find and enroll in research studies. So we're very excited about that. Uh, I was actually just on a call uh, through everything ALS with Dr. Bowser out of Phoenix, Arizona, who is researching biomarkers. And he said there is a lack of biodata from the presymptomatic community. So while we would hope that there would be thousands of patients from which they can pull genetic data from for their insights, it is more on the um, scale of 100 wow. or so patients per research study. Um, so I, I, Dials in particular is going to expand into uh, a program that is multi, at multiple sites uh, under the name Prevent ALS, uh, which is a really great yeah. ring to it. Um, so we, we are looking forward to um, developments and, and a lot of hope and what they're doing. Um, it's really great that you all are contributing to that directly. I've, I've seen... A number of different studies over the years, and, and we recently ran a survey that that found something similar. That around eighty percent of people want to be involved in research. This is in in general, not not ALS specific, um, but only about twenty percent of people feel like they get notified about research opportunities. So there's a clear gap between people who actually want to participate and how they find out about it. And I have a few 
hypotheses. I think a big one is not all healthcare professionals are necessarily engaged in research. So who your neurologist is or, or other specialist is plays a key role. But I also think groups groups like yours play have an enormous role to play in in building exactly what you described to get get the word out there. What what are you all what what kind of tricks do you have up your sleeve or what ideas do you have in in terms of better getting the word out there with with people to take part in research like this? So uh, that, that brings up a great point. A lot of what we're doing is trying to create a guidebook for what the entire familial ALS journey is like. One, there's no public awareness of, of what that experience is. And sadly, these stories, and that, that's why I speak out, is because the familial ALS story is hidden behind the fear of families of undergoing this again. Um, and so that, that keeps a lot of people silent and, and uninformed, sadly. What we are trying to do is trying to put out stories like mine, people's experiences with research, and how empowering it can be, um, as well as bringing out the research dashboard to connect people uh, more easily to enrolling. But I, I, I have spoken to many people who are on this journey trying to figure out how to be involved. And after sharing my experience um, and the great benefits that I feel like I've received from being involved in research, 90% of them have said, I'm going to sign up tomorrow. Um, and so may, some may be worried about some of the procedures that, are, that you have to undergo, um, but everything is voluntary. So if you don't want to do that lumbar puncture, you don't have to, although it would really help the scientific community if you do, and they're not so bad. Uh, and most importantly, uh, you do not have to find out your genetic status. Um, you can support research and remain blinded, um, but you will be a fully participating individual who will be helping nonetheless. How do you see this um, transitioning from genetic testing that primarily happens in research studies into the, the healthcare system? I, I think we've we've spoken about this previously, but a lot of the biotech companies that are developing precision therapies definitely have a role to play in this because they're they're funding many of these large scale genetic testing studies in order to to prove that their new therapies are safe and that they work do you, do you think ultimately the the goal is to have this covered by the major insurers and and you know national healthcare systems in in places like the UK or and, and I'm interested in how do we make that happen and make it happen as fast as possible? Because until that happens, um, you know, it's, it's only people that are fortunate enough to find their way into the research studies that, that are able to get access to this. So that, that's very true. And we want to break down as many barriers as possible and, and support people on this journey as much as we can. So I, I do see a big push from Biopharma to uncover this hidden community. But as they do so, it's vitally important they also provide support for those people because understanding that you carry a genetic mutation can be a difficult subject to deal with. But there are such wonderful resources already out there like genetic counselors. I know that my organization is trying to put out support groups so people can talk about this experience and what they've been through dealing with their loved ones having ALS. So I think that it's a much larger conversation that needs to occur uh, where we provide wraparound services and not only expose the, under, the underlying cause of family trauma, we need to address that family trauma. Um, so I, I think 
we hope to be step in, in step with biopharma as they debut more genetic testing and more therapies to provide these auxiliary services. Um, now, will they help fund these? Uh, those conversations are yet to be had. I'd love to hear more about your advocacy work and, and the organizations you're a part of and, and where you're planning to take them from here. So we're, we're recording here at the very end of 2020, which has been a, a, a crazy year by all accounts going into 2021. Where, where do you see the next, you know, next year, two years, three years, what's on the horizon for you? I'll say 2020 has been a banner year for my organization as we only started in May of 2020. Uh, this was at the, the culmination of living this experience and seeing so many gaps um, that I knew needed to be filled. Um, so I rallied a few other patients like myself to form an, an organization under IMALS or inside of IMALS, which has been a phenomenal place to, to host our, um, our work. So uh, currently we're working to create this guidebook, bring about content, but I think in the future, it's much more of providing a support structure for patients as they go through this journey. Not only can we be uh, a website where they can access re asset, access um, information, but also a living, breathing organization where they can interact with people, where they can be provided support. Um, if you look at any thriving ALS organization, we want to do everything that they do for their patients which runs the gamut of services. So I think there's so much to be done. If you look at the, the landscape, there's probably 20 or so major ALS organizations, and none of them sadly focus on the familial ALS journey. Currently, we are the only organization trying to focus on that population. So I think there's very much space and the need for us to have a place in this, in this community. That's hugely important. How how many people around the world that are affected by what it's a, it's interesting thinking about it because it really depends how you define affected. Um, because if 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 your if your father has it, then um, whether you carry the gene or not, you're you're affected enormously. And I think you want to you want to be able to think about it as families rather than individuals. How how do you think about it? And if it's families or, or individuals, just how many of them are there out there? So we don't yet have exact numbers on that. Um, but I think that you, you spoke to this earlier. You said uh, maybe 10 years ago, you would have thought that 100% of ALS cases are sporadic. And now um, it's closer to 90-10, 90, 90, a 90-10 split sporadic versus familial. I personally, and, and many people in my community, believe that that's possibly closer to 15 or 20% of all ALS cases being familial. So we haven't done extrapolated the numbers down to this many ALS, familial ALS cases leads to this many at risk. But I do think that there are on the order of tens of thousands of patients who are at risk of carrying a familial ALS mutation. Now, it's, it's interesting. Um, there is a Facebook group called the Familial Hereditary ALS Facebook group with over 2,500 members. However, those don't seem to be our target market as these people are already connected. They're informed. They're, they're yearning for information. 
What we're really trying to find and the people we're trying to affect are those who at this moment refuse to even open their eyes to the possibility of treatment or being empowered or um, being a part of this community. And what I worry is that by having those blinders on, if this does turn out to develop into ALS for them, they will not be prepared. Not that they won't be prepared, but if you look at the experience that I'm having prior to a, a possible ALS diagnosis compared to someone who lives their life with no perception of it coming and then it happens, I have to imagine that the preparation, the community, the involvement that I have will allow me to deal with this extremely difficult process in a much better, more mindful, calm way. And so I hope to pass that along to as many people as I possibly can to prepare them for this journey, which I hope never comes. Absolutely. You really need that. Most people need that community structure, right, to be there. And and you may have, you know, if you really you happen to have a biochemistry degree and you can really understand the science, great, but you may need to lean on the community for something else. And, and for others, they, you know, there may be have a have a really strong family unit at home they can lean on, but want some help understanding what are the clinical trials I might be able to get involved in or, or otherwise. So you, you can, you can create that online community that, and maybe offline, I suppose it's a, it's a going to be possible again in 2021. I hope. We're looking forward to that. You know, I'll, I'll say quickly, one of the organizations that we've really structured ourselves after is the Huntington's disease youth organization. And they are a vibrant organization, UK based, that focuses on the youth of the Huntington's disease community. Now, Huntington's disease is 100% genetic, so there's always a 50% chance that it will be passed down to the next generation. And that organization has done such a phenomenal job at bringing to light the stories of those patients so that those who are experiencing life as uh, the child of Huntington's disease don't have to wonder um, and, and search the internet uh, aimlessly to try to find answers. It's there. Uh, they also hold conferences for hopefully what we can do in the future after the pandemic to connect young people to a cause, to meaning. Um, and, and I think that's really where we want to be in a few years is, is at that level of awareness throughout the public eye and providing that level of support to our community members and, and not only young people. We don't we're not only trying to provide resources for pre-symptomatic people. We fully understand that many did not know their genetic status before they had children. And we are here for you to help you guide to help guide you on that journey of passing down that that information um, and helping people be empowered by it, not fearful of it. No, that's absolutely great. Well, I I know we're running up against time here, Daniel. I I just personally want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's the power of storytelling is is clear. Everyone can learn something from listening to it, whether they're personally affected or not. And I just think it's great that you've dedicated your life to making a difference for others like you. If people are listening to this and they want to keep track of of you, your work, get involved, where where's the best place or places to reach you? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Familial ALS, or you can also look uh, up our team page on the IMALS website. If you type in IMALS, Familial ALS into Google, 
there's ways to contact us um, to become more involved and, and be a part of this journey to truly create a better future for our community. So I, I look forward to meeting as many of you out there as possible. And Patrick, I really appreciate the time you've given me to have this, this stage to share my story because that's what it takes. It takes a partnership. So thank you so much. Of course, it's my pleasure. And um, launching this organization in May in, in the middle of a pandemic is uh, is amazing. And of course, wishing you all the success if there's if there's anything I can help with and love to. Thanks so much again for, for taking the time. Happy New Year. Looking forward to a new start to hopefully no pandemic and much gathering and, and much love. Uh, that, that's what we can hope for. That's right. It's um, it puts it all in perspective. It's uh, it's been a year that has reminded us how important it is to be able to be in the same place with people. Very true. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. 